Good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20 this morning. As we come to the Lord's Word this morning, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank You for the blessed privilege of being able to gather as the the people of God here in this place to come together to worship You, to know that You are here with us as we gather in Your name, to know that You are with us as well in the presence of Your body as, as we come together as the body of Christ. We thank You that we live in a place where we have freedom, where we can gather openly, where we can possess Your Word freely, where we can freely study. We thank You that You meet us here in Your Word, that Your Word is alive, that it is powerful. We ask this morning that Your Spirit would take Your Word and illumine us, our hearts, with it that we might understand it, that we might see You in it, that we might get to know You through it, that You might use it as the surgeon's scalpel to do its work in our hearts, that we might not be just those who, who hear the Word, but we are transformed by it to become conformed more to the image of Your dear Son. So Lord, we ask Your blessing in that. And we ask that in it all and through it all that Jesus is honored. We ask that You would bless them and now bless us. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. This past week, Thursday, I had the privilege of going with my daughter and grandson down to the Cardinal's home opener. I was struck as I was there by the the number of nicknames that are in sports. They were introducing the old players and uh, one of the fan favorites of all, the Wizard of Oz, Ozzie Smith. Some of the old names that come back, Stan the Man Musial, J. Dizzy Dean, Sad to say the game Thursday was a little lackluster. I've I, been to lots of Cardinal games. The crowd is usually really in the game. For a home opener, I thought it was kind of a dead crowd. There was one time in the game when the crowd would really come alive. Every time one player stepped up to the plate, you'd hear it starting, Yadi, 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 and everybody's jumping to their feet and Yadi, Yadier Molina. Nicknames, lots of them in sports. You guys might, some of you might have nicknames, maybe one or two nicknames that you've had over the years, some of which you probably would rather forget or wish others would. (laughs) Nicknames can be endearing. They can also at times be really embarrassing. A little Bible trivia this morning. Do you know that the Bible gives some people nicknames? For example, last week we, were, we talked at the sunrise service about Mary who is called the Magdalene. It's a nickname there. 
you might think of uh, two of the disciples, James and John. They were brothers. They were called the sons of thunder. Jesus' cousin John was called John the Baptizer or the Baptist. Then there's one in our story today. And by the way, today we're in the... If you weren't here last week, we began a new series for this month looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And uh, today here in John 20, we encounter one other of Jesus' disciples who has a nickname. His name is Thomas. Do you know what his nickname is? Everybody says that, but that's not it. Look with me down at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, or in some of your translations, Didymus. Didymus is just the word for twin. He's called a twin because probably he was one. Who was his twin? We don't know. Some people think it was Matthew because their names are coupled together in the list of disciples, but who knows? He probably, though, was a twin. Now, you guys said... Doubting Thomas is his nickname. He's often called that, but he's never called that in the Bible. That's the name the church has given him, but the Scriptures didn't. And he's called that because of the passage in front of us this morning. Speaking of doubts and doubting, I wonder, have you ever, as a believer in Christ, had doubts? Have you ever struggled with doubts? Is this really true? Is this really right? Is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is heaven real? Have you ever had doubts? Is it okay to have doubts? And can we own up to that in church? Well, if you've ever had doubts, just a little good news. As I look at Scripture, I realize that godly people sometimes doubt. Godly people in the Bible doubted. Genesis chapter 17, Abraham has been told by God that he and Sarah will have a son. They're going to have a child in their old age. Abraham doubted. Exodus chapter 4, God speaks to Moses out from the burning bush and says, Moses, i got a job for you. You need to go to Pharaoh and I want you to, to lead my people out of Egypt out of slavery. And Moses is like, God, uh, you've got the wrong guy. He doubted. He raised objection after objection after objection. He doubted that God would do or could do what God wanted to do through him. First Kings chapter 19, the prophet Elijah, having just stood against the, the prophets of Baal, had a great victory, and then Queen Jezebel issues a death threat against Elijah, and he goes running for the hills as he collapses by the, the brook. You recall, he begins to doubt that God really knows what He's doing. The prophet Habakkuk, as he opens his little book, has great doubts about the justice of God. Matthew chapter 11, 
John the Baptist is in prison. He's been keeping up with the ministry of Jesus, what Jesus is doing, and he's realizing Jesus is not doing at all what he was expecting Jesus to do. And so he, he sends some of his followers to go to Jesus and ask, ask Jesus this. He says, are you the one we are to expect? Or is there someone else coming? <laughs> John doubted. Godly people sometimes doubt. Now, not all doubts and not all doubters are sincere. You know as well as I do that some people use doubts as a smokescreen. They, they are looking for any excuse they can find not to believe. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says of such people that they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they use they use doubts. They deny God with their doubts as an excuse for their sin. But other doubters are sincere. They want to believe. They're willing to believe, but they're plagued by honest questions. And when we're honest, most of us realize that there are those times where we struggle with such doubts. We believe, we, we, we want to believe, but there's some real questions. There's some, this situation has caused some concerns and I just don't know what to do. And we begin to doubt. Some good news though. Sincere doubt can lead us to grow. See, we don't tend to say of people who never doubt anything, we don't tend to say they're wise. We have another word for them. We say they are gullible. They will believe anything. It's snowing outside on April 7th. Wait, that could happen. At least the weatherman said that earlier this week. April 8th, isn't it? That's the day. No, we say people are gullible when they'll believe anything. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul wrote about the, these folks in Berea. And he said these folks were no, more noble than the Thessalonians, than those in Thessalonica, because daily they would go and search the Scripture. When Paul would finish teaching, they would go back and they would dig through the Scriptures to see, is what he said right? Paul said, that's great. I love that. Doubting at times can be a good thing. Oswald Chambers, great Christian author, wrote, Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he's thinking. Ray Pritchard, a pastor and author, noted that no truth is so strongly believed as that which you once doubted. In the history of the Christian church, the greatest doubters have often become the strongest believers. That has been true of people in the past and it's true of people in our generation. Some folks like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, they were once unbelieving doubters and they've become some of the greatest apologists for the Christian faith in our generation. It's worth noting in Thomas's 
defense, as it were, that being nicknamed Doubting is a bit unfair because he wasn't the only disciple to doubt. Matter of fact, all of them doubted. Thomas was simply the last one of them to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You remember, and we, we noted last week, that uh, the disciples didn't believe the women when they came with the reports. We went to the tomb and it's empty and we saw angels and they said that Jesus is risen from the dead. The women come back with reports. We've seen Jesus. They didn't believe that was Sunday morning. Jesus rose in the pre-dawn hours. Women came early in the morning with the reports. All day long, the disciples do not believe. They do not believe. They do not believe until that evening. Sometime, Jesus appeared to Peter. My guess, it doesn't tell us when. My guess is it's late afternoon. He comes in, cut! Jesus is alive! Again, it's not recorded for us, so we don't know what He said. But they still don't believe. Jesus that afternoon walks along with the disciples on the road to Emmaus that we looked at last week and, and then He leaves them at evening just as evening is falling and those guys run back to Jerusalem and they tell the disciples and I'm sure the response of the disciples is, come on, where is all this stuff coming from? They still don't believe until Jesus appears in the room. Finally, all the disciples believe that Jesus has risen. Well, all but one. Thomas. Let's look at our text. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see His hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Looking here at Thomas's doubt, I want to just notice a few things that might help us to understand his doubt, and as well, perhaps at times, some of our own. Four things I see here that contribute to doubt. The first, I noticed just in that little phrase where it says that Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. Now perhaps Thomas had just, you know, he had to step out for a moment. Uh, I don't think it was to smoke a cigarette. Maybe he needed a cup of coffee. Had to run down the street to Starbucks. It was a long line. By the time he gets back from the long line, Jesus has been there. The disciples saw him. They said, wow, you missed it. Jesus was here. Maybe that was it, but I don't think that's the case. I think probably what's going on here is, if you've noticed, we tend to, you and I, we're all individuals, and we tend to deal with, with sadness and sorrow and grief and, and hard times differently. Some of you, when the hard times hit, when, when sadness comes, when depression comes, some of you go running to your friends and your family. 
You look up your, your friends, you call them up, you get together with the folks that you care about and who care about you, and you draw upon them for strength and comfort and you, ought to, you have to talk it out and work it through. You just have to be with folks. Others of you, when those times come, what you do is you withdraw, you pull back, you go off to be alone, right? Just maybe that's Thomas here. There's nothing wrong with going off to be alone and having some quiet time to think and to try to process through things, but very easily going off alone moves into isolation. And isolation and seclusion easily becomes a breeding ground for doubt. Fertile breeding ground. Scripture reminds you and me that as believers in Christ, we are no longer just individuals. We are part of a collective. We are part of the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are part of the body of Christ. And as such, as part of the body, we are connected to each other. And because we're connected to each other, we need each other. And because we're connected to each other and need each other, we do not do very well alone, just like our physical body. You can try an experiment if you don't really believe me. You can go cut off one of your fingers and set your finger down. Neither one of you are going to do very well. But your finger is going to do worse than the rest of you. May I say a bad illustration, but it's... A, it's a picture of the body of Christ. We don't do well alone. We are part of the body. And if you are one of those people who is of the nature and the tendency to withdraw and pull back and isolate yourself when difficult times and sad times and, and tough times come, you need to understand that's in the long run not a healthy thing because you're part of a body. And I don't know that that was the issue here with Thomas, but I have a sneaking suspicion that he wasn't just out for coffee, that he was absent from the group. And that's when he missed Christ. May I say, if you're one of those who tends to miss the body, you come to church every once in a while, you come and you warm a pew for an hour or so on Sunday morning and that's your only connection with the body, you're not in good shape. The Scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day is the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ. And the closer we get to the coming of Christ, the tougher things are going to get in the world. And he says the more important it is for you and I to be together. And so if that was important in the first century, as we are now two millennia closer to the return of Christ, the more important it is that you and I gather together so gathering together as the body of Christ isn't an option. It's not a luxury. It is something we need. You need us and we need you. Isolation is a contributor to doubt. second thing I notice 
as I look at Thomas, as I realize that Thomas is not a timid man. He stands here against all ten of the other disciples and stands alone and says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not buying it. See, we usually think as of Peter as the bold disciple, and he was. Peter was impetuously bold. I tend to think that Thomas is more pensively, thoughtfully bold, but he is equally bold as Peter. And we'll see that in a, in a moment in some things. But, you know, it, it takes a lot of guts when your friends are there, everybody's saying one thing, and you go, uh-uh. And especially when ten of them are there saying, Jesus is alive! I, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. He doesn't just say, okay guys, whatever you think. He says, no! I won't believe it! Until I see those prints of the nails, I touch those prints of the nails, I stick my hand to the side, I won't believe it! He's a bold guy. A couple of months before this, Jesus and the disciples are down in Jericho. Jesus says, it's time to go to Judea. And the guys say, wait a minute, Jesus. Uh, last time you were there, they wanted to kill you. Not safe. Let's not do it. And Jesus said, time for us to go to Judea. Thomas is the one who speaks up. Verse 16, John 11. So Thomas called the twin, says to his fellow disciples, let's go so we can die with him. Thomas isn't just a pessimist. He is a very brave realist. He says, it's likely we're going to die. Let's go. He's a tough guy. He is loyal. He is brave. And he's ready to go and he's ready to die. The night before the crucifixion, as Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room where they had the Passover, and they go down out of the upper room, out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. I will die before I deny you, before I desert you. And if you read carefully, what it says is, they all said the same thing. Thomas too. Thomas, I think, was he in his mind absolutely convinced, Lord, the last thing I'll do ever is desert you. I will die first. And then a couple hours later, when they arrested Jesus, every one of them to a man fled. Some people get over that easily. But I think a guy like Thomas didn't. Personal failure, you see, often leads to doubt. If you're a person, and I think Thomas was this type of person, maybe not, maybe I'm reading too much between the lines, but if you are a person who tends to be introspective, Personal failure hits you like a ton of bricks. 
For Thomas, I think the realization that you could mess up this badly, that you could be so wrong about yourself, it shakes you to the core. You think, if I could be wrong about that, I could be wrong about everything. And doubts flood your mind, your heart. Personal failure, I think, can lead to doubt. Another thing that leads to doubt, if you notice, again, Thomas's very graphic requirements, I won't believe until I see those nail prints. I won't believe until I stick my finger in those nail prints. I won't believe until I stick my hand where that spear went into the side. I won't believe until then. What that tells me, Thomas is still carrying around in his mind a very graphic visual image of the suffering of Jesus. The stark, tragic reality and deep personal loss has shaken him, shaken him to the core. He's lost a beloved friend. He's watched an innocent, godly, gentle, holy, miracle-working prophet of God die a humiliating Brutal death after horrific suffering all at the hands of brutal people. Thomas says it's going to take something dramatic to get me past that. He's dead. You don't die that way and just come back from it. And I think you and I get that When we experience some kind of great personal loss, it shakes us to the core. The loss of a loved one or the loss of a child. To go through and witness a catastrophe, a disaster, flood, fire, earthquake, hurricane, can shake, shake us. To watch innocent people suffer, innocent people die, see evil people win. It's hard in our minds to reconcile a good and a loving and a great God with what we witness over here. It leads us to doubt. The fourth thing I see here that contributes to doubt is an ignorance of God's Word. Either not knowing God's Word or not understanding God's Word. Jesus, you'll recall, if you go back through any of the Gospels, Jesus had told the disciples on multiple occasions, I must die and I'll be raised again on the third day. He told them that in plain language. And yet apparently, as we noted last week, not a one of them really took it to heart. The only people who ever seemed to respond to that at all uh, after the crucifixion was the Jewish leaders who killed him. (laughs) They were worried that somehow he was going to try to come back on the third day. But the disciples, nah, it's over. Just a few nights before this, 
Jesus, as I said, had told them many times He was going to die, but it was Thursday night, the Passover night, as they celebrated in the upper room. Jesus is there talking, John chapter 14, and He says, I must go. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to my Father's house, He says. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And He says, I'm going to come again and take you to be with Me so we can be together. And the disciples are there. But I'm sure on their face, they're just, yeah, that's great, Jesus. Yeah, awesome. They didn't have a clue. Finally, in the midst of it, Thomas, you think Peter's always the one who speaks up. Again, Thomas is bold, like Peter. He's just not as impetuous. He's been sitting there for a while. And Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Because Jesus had just said, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas has finally had enough. He says, Lord, we don't get it. We don't have a clue what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And I'm glad he said that because Jesus gave that marvelous answer, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That didn't really help them in their confusion. I think they're all still sitting there going, we don't know. They didn't get it. But you see, the ignorance of God's Word led to wrong expectations. Jesus had said it again and again and again and again. It wasn't that they were ignorant of God's Word in terms of hearing it. They were ignorant in terms of listening to it. In terms of understanding it. And so they had an expectation that Jesus is the Messiah. We got that right. But they're expecting the Messiah to be as King. That He's going to get rid of Rome. He's going to set up His kingdom. And they're going to just walk into it. It's going to be awesome. And they have this picture. And Jesus has said again and again, it's not going to be that way. I'm going to die. You recall last week when we were there in Luke chapter 24 and we're, we're looking at Jesus' words to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. What Jesus said to them, He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Jesus says, guys, it's right there, black and white, on the pages of Scripture. And we looked at just a few of them last week. Can't you, didn't you see it? It was there. You saw it. You just wouldn't listen to it. You are slow of heart, slow to believe. So Jesus took them through a Bible study to correct their thinking. And I say that so easily happens with you and me. If we don't know well what God says, if we don't know God's Word well, then we will lack God's wisdom And that leaves us vulnerable where we can be easily confused by ungodly ideas, by wrong perspectives. We end up with wrong hopes and wrong dreams. And when God doesn't do what we think God ought to do, we find ourselves devastated and doubting. Are you struggling with doubts? 
It's a time when sometimes people start to move away from God's Word, but it's the very thing that should drive us back to God's Word to find out what does God say. To get our wrong perspectives righted. To get our wrong ideas corrected. That's what Jesus did with those two disciples. Very quickly as I wrap up, let's look at just how Jesus dealt with Thomas. For there I think we'll see Hopefully, I want to just note three things that I think apply to us as well as we deal with doubts. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then He said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see My hands. Put out your hand and place it in My side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And three things to note as Jesus deals here with Thomas. First, Jesus comes to them again. It's a week later. Once again, they're in a locked room, but this time Thomas is there. But immediately after greeting them, immediately after blessing them all, he zeroes in, he rivets on Thomas. But did you notice he didn't say, Thomas, you idiot. Thomas, you foolish man. Thomas, I can't believe you of all people. You know, you're a thinking guy. You just missed the whole... He doesn't chew him out. He doesn't... He says, obviously from what Jesus says, he knows exactly what Thomas had said. He knows exactly the turmoil that was going on in Thomas's heart. And what I realize is that God knows and understands our doubts. Jesus has come just so Thomas can settle his doubts. He puts out the welcome mat to Thomas. He says, my doubting friend, come on in. May I suggest a response in that when you and I are doubting? Instead of trying to hide that, time to face it. And to say, God already knows I'm doubting. Doesn't surprise Him. And why not then just go ask Him for help? One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture is in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. There's a story there about a man, a father who has a son who has been possessed by an evil spirit. He's come trying to find Jesus to get some help for his son. He, he, Jesus was out with Peter, James, and John. They were up, or, uh, up on the mountain, the transfiguration. The other disciples are there. He's there. Jesus comes down. There's this commotion. Uh, Jesus comes up. This guy comes over. Jesus, here's the problem. i got a son with an evil spirit. Can you help him? I love Jesus' response. All things are possible for him, for one who believes. Here's the line I love. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief. <laughs> See, I think that's a perfect prayer for you to pray when you're in times of doubt. Lord, I believe. I want to believe. I try to believe. But I'm struggling here. This has really got me tied up in knots. 
has really got me confused. This, I'm really hurting here. Help me. God knows and understands our doubts. Second thing I notice about Jesus' response here to, to Thomas is He says, Hey Thomas, stick your hand up there. Go ahead. Come on, stick your finger here. Come on, Thomas, here. Stick your hand here. I don't. Jesus isn't being snarky. He's inviting Thomas. He says, buddy, come check it out. I know you've been struggling with this. Come check it out. Don't leave your doubts unaddressed. Jesus welcomes every sincere doubter to come and check out the evidence for themselves. He's not surprised you're having trouble with whatever it is. He says, come on, check it out. You might say, yeah, but Thomas got to do something that we can't do. Thomas got to go and actually check out the scars and look at it. And he got to see the side. Yeah, Jesus, it's just Jesus and He really rose from the dead. True. I can't do that. That's right. Jesus talks to you and me. Do you notice what He says here? Just go on. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Here it is for your part. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He looked forward. Jesus understands not only how hard it is for Thomas, but how hard it's going to be for us. We're going to have doubts. John con continues writing. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The Bible doesn't ask us to check our brains at the door and just believe. He says there's evidence here. John says this is the reason why I've written this down. They get this is going to be hard to understand. It's going to be hard to believe. But John says, I'm writing this down so that you can know the truth. Thomas's story is here so you can read about Thomas who did what you wish you could do. Thomas wouldn't believe. He had to see it. He had to touch it. I want you guys, to, those of you who are struggling, to say, man, i got to see it. i got to touch it. Well, you can't see it and touch it, but I want you to know somebody did. John is saying, I want you to know for a fact this is true. You can count on it. This is what is written here so you can believe. And it's enough. It's not everything. There's so much more that could have been said, but what I've written down is enough. The evidence is there. If you'll check it out, there's enough evidence anybody can see it's true. People who choose not to believe can always find some excuse. But for anyone who will honestly examine the evidence, there's ample and abundant reason to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. And believe me, people have questioned it, attacked it, tested it over the last two millennia. And it stood against every assault. If you're here this morning and you have questions, you're struggling, you need help, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Aaron. Come talk to any of our elders. Come talk to Pastor Larry. Come talk to any of our teachers. We will be glad 
to get you started and point you to some places. Here's some things to check out. Here's some evidence to look at. Third thing that Jesus says, the last thing I want to point out that Jesus says to Thomas is this. He says, stop doubting. Do not disbelieve, he says, but believe. In other words, get off the fence. Doubting is good. Doubting is no sin, but at some time you have to make a choice. Thomas in that moment moved instantly from being the biggest doubter to making the greatest testimony about Jesus of all the apostles. He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, My Lord and my God. He was a good Jew. He knew exactly what that meant. To say that somebody is God is blasphemy, the ultimate sin, unless they are God. Thomas is convinced this moment that Jesus, that's exactly who Jesus is. He is God. Because His resurrection proved it. Thomas backed it up with his life. All of the apostles did. You know that all, all of them except possibly John, died a martyr's death. Thomas, again, they all took Jesus' word seriously to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And Thomas went, perhaps the farthest of all, he went to India where he won some folks to Christ and ultimately died at the hands of some pagan priests. They did it because it was true. Part of the great evidence of the resurrection is the changed lives of these men. But what about you? Do you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died on the cross for your, for your sin and rose again from the dead? If you're here this morning and you have doubts, I challenge you, double dog dare you, check it out. Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? He invites you even today to believe in Him, to find forgiveness of sin, to find eternal life. Are you a believer in Christ? I ask, are you following Him with all of your heart and all of your life? Because Jesus calls you to stop doubting, start believing, and get moving. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word. This honest look at these men. Because what we see is people who are just like us, who struggle just as we would have. Yet what they saw, what they witnessed was undeniable. Jesus rose from the dead and it's proof of who He is. And because of that, everything changes. Everything's different. Father, may we not be those who simply ignore evidence or those who doubt but just don't do anything to check it out. If we have doubts, may we confront them, may we deal with them. And may You change those doubts as You did with Thomas into great faith. And may we be those who follow You with all we are and all we have. And those who speak boldly to tell others there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. In His name we ask.
Amen.